Hello, everyone. It's good to be together again. This is the third Sunday of our Advent teaching. Today, I want to talk about life outside the margins. Perhaps what makes this nativity story so compelling is that it both grounds us in the daily realities of the human condition, and at the same time, it lifts our vision to a fresh awareness of the heavenly realm. As we saw earlier, the incarnation is the foundation for understanding all that took place in Bethlehem. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully human. He's at the center of all divine activity, and he is immersed in the entire human condition. Well, Today, I want to look at what is most earthy about the nativity, how God moves through hiddenness. We're going to look at outsiders and the less thans, that there's no separation between spiritual realities and the human condition. Today, we're going to let the story of the Holy Family ground us in those daily realities of life that one way or another, sooner or later, we all must face. So let's start with the journey to Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread, and it's because it was situated in a very fertile area. It's, it's interesting that the one who was born in the house of bread would over 30 years later proclaim, I am the bread of life. Bethlehem was just about five miles south of Jerusalem. It was so insignificant that it was not even included in Old Testament registries of towns. But there was a wonderful prophetic word, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Now, Joseph and Mary, as Jews, they lived in a society that was under continual oppression from the Roman world. Uh, they were taxed by both the temple and Rome. Uh, for the vast majority of, of people in Israel, this was an imposed systemic poverty. They also lived with the constant fear and tension of, of the military and judicial systems. Now, because Rome demanded that everyone return to their ancestral homes for a census, they were forced to go on a journey of over 90 miles. Coming down from Galilee, now likely we all know this, but we're usually unaware of the conditions that this man with a young pregnant wife in her final trimester, what they faced. They would have had to travel at a much slower pace. Probably it took 10 days to make this trip. And there were many, many hazards along the way. Bandits were common. They, they would have traveled for quite a time along the Jordan Valley, which was a refuge for bears and wild boars and even lions. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered warning signs for travelers in this area. 
And it's so different than what we think of. That There was no series of restaurants. There was no smooth road. They relied on the bread that they brought, on herbs, uh, maybe occasional fish when they were down by the river. And they would have had to carry with them enough water in skins. Imagine their exhaustion, especially Mary, nine months pregnant. It and we know that when they arrived in Bethlehem, famously, there was no room at the inn. Actually, inn is a poor translation. There were no inns as we know them. Their best hope, and every traveler's best hope, was to get lodging through family relations or maybe a friend of a friend. But when they got there, Bethlehem was crammed with other travelers who'd come because of the census. And we know from a second century account that Mary and Joseph indeed stayed in a cave with animals. Now imagine this, nine months pregnant, just finished a long, hard journey. And when they get there, there's no place to stay. Just take a moment and put yourself in that situation. You see, it's in the midst of our weariness, it's in the midst of our discouragement that so often God meets us. Well, let's look at some others from this story, the shepherds. Excuse me. In society, the shepherd's work was essential. Everybody needed it, but nobody wanted to do it because it was hard, dirty work. You know, we we may overlook the fact that the temple sacrificial system required daily many, many sheep to be brought in. As well, the income from both the sheep's wool and meat was an important part of this largely agrarian society. It It was hard work with extremely long hours. Believe me, they're not just sitting around in pastures. They they had to take the flocks. They they gathered them every morning. They had to take them to water. They had to bring them back every night. They had to find strays. They were up at night protecting the sheep from wild animals and from thieves. That's why no one wanted to do this job. They, They almost never stopped working. But this was what was required as a shepherd in order for them to economically even survive. And on top of that, shepherds were outcasts in many, many ways. They couldn't even give testimony in a court of law. They were, they were victims of stereotypes. Um, a quote from the Times says that, that to buy wool, milk, or a kid from a shepherd was forbidden. Do you know why? On the assumption that it would be stolen property. You know, there's sadly, there's many parallels for us today. Migrant farm workers in America make up about 50% of the uh, farm workforce. And like the shepherds, their work is long and hard. The average migrant farm worker's lifespan is only 49 years. I was shocked when I found that out. You know, the average income for an entire family of migrant farm workers only makes about $25,000 a year. A family cannot live on that. 
Now, obviously, the work that they do is vital to the well-being of our society. We, we've got to eat. But just like the shepherds 2,000 years ago, migrant farm workers are so often stigmatized as dishonest or, or what's even more incredible as being lazy, given the work they had to do. Because like the shepherds, the migrants often work two or even three jobs just to feed their children and keep a roof over their heads. Now, think again of the shepherds. Like a teenage girl from an obscure northern town, Mary, it was to these ones that the angels came, making them the first people to hear the glorious news of the Christ child. It was these ones they came to. You know, it seems to me that the gospel has always bent toward the poor and the outcast. Remember, Bethlehem was called the city of David, the shepherd boy who was overlooked by his own father when the prophet Samuel asked to see his sons. The angels came to them, beckoning them to come to the Christ child. The, the shepherds were the prototype of so many who have encountered Jesus. Because scripture tells us, after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were amazed. Now just think of what it meant for them to go and tell what they'd seen. They, they had to step over the prejudice, the contempt, the slander, and yet it could not keep them from stepping beyond the boundary lines of their social condition. And for 2,000 years, it's the shepherds that we are reminded of year after year, not the respectable ones. The next group I want to look at is the three magi. T.S. Eliot, one of my favorite poets, wrote a, a, a poem called the, the Journey of the Magi, and I'm just going to give you a few verses from it, a few lines from it, rather. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter, and the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. Oh, a hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel at night, just sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears saying, this is all folly. Matthew's Christmas account shines a light on some very different details, largely centered around those whom tradition is called the three wise men. They were, more accurately, the, the three magi. The scripture says they came from the east, which, which was almost always an expression that meant Persia. They were likely astrologers and priests. Now, it's interesting to me that Matthew introduces them into the Christ story without any hesitation, because in the first century, 
when he was writing, both Jews and Christians were told to avoid the Magi. They were accused of engaging in black arts, of being idolaters. But in Matthew's account, we see them as seekers. These three men believed what they were seeing in the star and what they were experiencing in their hearts. They believed it enough to make a dangerous 900-mile journey. In spite of their doubts, in spite of the hardships, they came to worship. You know, for foreign dignitaries to fall down and worship before a baby in an ordinary house in Bethlehem, this in and of itself gives us a picture of the reversal of the kingdom of God. It's a remarkable illustration of the values of the world being turned on their head. God is bypassing accepted racial, religious, and cultural barriers. Though the Jews said, stay away from them, God spoke to them uniquely. You know, God always reaches out to those who are seeking truth, seeking to know him. I don't think he's very concerned at all whether they, the, the road to Jesus is the conventional road. And yet the church is is always afraid of these outsiders. In my day, in the 80s, um, the church that I was part of, we saw films on this. We read about this, the great, great danger of the New Agers. They were the great threat. Folks, the object of the great threat changes over time. But the issue of exclusion exclusion does not. St. Basil, one of my favorite church fathers, said this. The gifts of the Magi celebrate not only the birth of Jesus, but birth of a new humanity. It's interesting that the first 300 years of Christian art more than any other scene, depicted the three magi bringing the gifts before the Christ child. Well, let's look at one more aspect, the escape to Egypt. The powers that be, the spiritual dark powers, are always threatened and therefore always come against anything or anyone who challenges them or the status quo that they create. It has always been that way. Now, history tells us that that Herod the Great was a very, very cruel king. But the powers used his cruelty to try to eliminate the Christ child. And so, the Holy Family, the family that we so easily picture in in a Hallmark gift card scene, are now the refugees who are running for their lives. They're running to Egypt simply so they can survive. Right now, we're in the midst of daily, very personal stories of refugees trying to flee for their lives, often unsuccessfully. And isn't it interesting that in our day, most of those refugees are trying to get from Gaza into Egypt, the very place where the Holy Family was going. 
And imagine what it's like, what it was like for the Holy Family and what it's like for refugees. They had to leave everything behind. They had to leave their possessions. They had to leave their loved ones, their employment. They needed to forge a whole new life. And their future was very, very uncertain. Too many Christians forget that Jesus and his family were political refugees. You know, the Bible tells us 59 times as believers to care for the aliens, for the refugees, because our Lord was a refugee. And in fact, Peter says we too are aliens, sojourners. Again, you see the gospel, you see Jesus from the very beginning always bends toward the poor and the outcast and the refugee. Just before COVID stopped us, I went with a team of friends into the refugee camps in Mexico near Tijuana. And, uh, I, you know, I met hundreds, maybe thousands. And most of them, in fact, were not from Mexico. They were from the Northern Triangle of El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala. And they didn't come to get better jobs. They came like the Holy Family, to escape the death that was waiting for them if they stayed. It's interesting, Jesus used his people in Mexico to take care of these refugees. I remember walking with a pastor one day. He was caring for 460 refugees. It's a poor Mexican church, and yet they were there. He gave them shelter. He gave them food. And I asked, how on earth do you feed so many every day? And I remember vividly, he looked at me and he said, Jesus provides through the generosity of others and by multiplying the food. Now, statistically, I'm sad to say that evangelicals in America have a much more negative view of our place as helpers and rescuers of refugees than those who identify as non-Christians. So I think that this story, <laughs> this very earthy story, needs to confront some of our blindness, some of our assumptions. If we'll allow it, if we're willing to let the people and circumstances of the Christmas story open our eyes to the reality of earthiness, the human condition, we can step into a more inclusive and, I believe, more truthful and authentic gospel through the lives of Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the three magi, and the escape of the Holy Family. We can let this Advent season take us into deeper and perhaps unfamiliar territory. True gospel is always inclusive. Not only the poor and the outcast but it includes everyone, even us, because no one is left out. Today, we have let God's great story lead us into the truth of the human condition. Next week, we will let it lead us into the eternal and ultimate realities of the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus said, lift up your eyes and see. God bless you.